Hello, I'm Andrew Fuller, and I am the chairperson of Generation Next. And in this series of podcasts, we talk to eminent people who are specialists in their fields about ways to promote mental health in young people. And today, we're very fortunate to have Katrina Stews McFerrin, who is the Associate Dean at the uh, Victorian College of the Arts and also the Associate Director of the Melbourne Conservatorium, but even more important is a music therapist. And of course, we want to think about really how we can use music therapy with young people. So hi, Katrina, it's great to be with you. Uh, firstly, how can we help uh, children to get a greater understanding of their emotions through the use of music? Well, that's a fantastically large and exciting question, Andrew. Um, I guess, from my perspective of working with a lot of children who have different needs, whether that's emotional needs, physical needs, learning needs, uh, the role that music can play in their lives is often that it provides an alternative to words. The most fundamental aspect that it offers is that it's, it's a creative form of expression. And some people say it's like a universal language, but I like to think, and, and I'm not alone in arguing this, that it's not really a language at all. It's a form of expression that allows people to be more fully who they are rather than being limited to these little things that we like to use to describe what we can see and hear and do around us, which are very useful for being specific. But when it comes to nebulous things like life and emotions and the world and existential issues like that, words just don't really cut it to capture the full spectrum of what we're trying to say and especially when you're younger and you haven't even got a full vocabulary available to you. So I, I guess rhythm and music are our oldest form of communication and is one that is present in our awareness even before we're born. Yeah yeah there's been a lot of research because you know babies create well, when they're born, they're this perfect blank template for doing laboratory studies in psychology. So they're quite fascinating to the psychologists um, who I like to attend to what they have to say at various times because they haven't been um, trained yet. You know, their minds are uh, not even, probably not even enculturated. So it's this beautiful moment where we discover that music and rhythm and actually not just rhythm, but also the shape of different structures. So the ways that not just even the melody, but the phrases that people use between parent and baby, they're inherently musical. And babies actually recognize uh, patterns. So you might sing a pattern like la, 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 la. And, you know, these are the kind of laboratory tests people do. And then they might do it a little bit like la, 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 la and the baby will recognize the pattern as being the same. So they can actually recognize patterns even when they're transposed, they get to understand it and are really familiar with using music. And of course, from a, a, the perspective of neurological studies, it's also about what endorphins are being released and it's all the, all the love endorphins that occur when we're music making are the same as when we're love making or when we're breastfeeding or, so there's a whole lot of reasons to suspect that the role that music plays at an evolutionary level is both rhythmic, but also those more qualitative nuances around the melodic and the phrase, the, the connectedness and the emotional expression, which is inherent 
and and it's really you know we've all done it we've played with babies go good go, 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 job and then they go whoa <laughs> you know it's that that play like everything if you notate it if you study it it's all very musical it's not western notation but it's gorgeously musical <laughs> I love that. I think I want to be part of your lab. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So when we design new schools, we try and think about soundscapes because there's quite a bit of interesting research that's not, I don't know how strong it is, it'd be interesting to get your take on it, that tells us that playing sort of modulating music calms, particularly kids who might be traumatised or with ADHD and other sort of just dysregulations of their emotions. Is you, are you kind of aware of that sort of area? Yeah, look, I think that music can be used in those ways. And for many people, just any distraction that covers up the blankness of a space. You know, I've worked in hospitals where there's beep, 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 all these sounds going. And so, of course, if you layer some music over the top of that, it's just somewhat um, security enhancing. And, you know, they've done all those experiments in train stations where they reckon that if you play classical music, you get rid of all the naughty teenagers because they don't like it so much. But I think that's the key. It's in the music therapy research that I do, you know, and in the music psychology research, it's never that there's a particular kind of music that's going to calm people down. There was the Mozart effect and all of these other things. But at the end of the day, if you don't like the music, it's not going to have a positive effect on you. So if you hear classical music and you're intimidated, then it's not going to calm you down. If you hear metal music and you're frightened, it's not going to energise you. It, it's, it's quite personal. And that's why those babies in the lab are very cool because they haven't developed preferences yet, apart from for their parents' voices. So I just, I'm really careful with soundscapes and things like that because it depends on the associations that the listener has on whether or not they... Um, provide the effects they're promising to provide but you know if it's something just vague and in the background and quite pretty and distracting and covering up something else then it can't really do much harm <laughs> I have some of my teenage clients can do a really good imitation of Chopin but anyway um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of weird um, so so take us through um how you apply this in a therapeutic sense when you're working with with children I'd be fascinated to hear just the process that you might go through yeah well usually it's what you said about like how nice would it be to be in your lab it's it's about engaging people in a playful way you know play is at the center of work with young children and uh, often they haven't developed those Uh, fears that we older people have about not being good enough yet either so so children are just delightful uh, to engage with in that way so usually it's about kind of finding out what kind of music engages this young person and how can we use that to address their needs And, and everybody has different needs of course so with littlies it might be about putting a whole bunch of instruments around a room some hand drums some xylophones, a guitar, you know, depending on their age, you might have a drum kit, you might have synthesizers, whatever you want. And just, you know, playing with them. So what do you want to play as you come into the room? What do you want to choose? Let's play together. And now that we're playing together, once we establish a point of connection in music, then it's like, so why don't we try playing our feelings on these instruments? You know, how would angry sound? Which instrument would you choose to play angry or 
what would sadness sound like if we were to play it? And so we can start to articulate a vocabulary to help young children go from expressing themselves. They won't hesitate. They're like, oh, yeah, I'll grab this tambourine and I'll go shake, 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 like mad and there's anger for you. It's like, cool. Okay, what would be a different kind of anger? Do you have quiet anger sometimes? Or is your anger always like that? Is it always energetic and powerful? And so it's kind of this relational dialogue that happens where we just try to get to understand one another and make sense of uh, what can be expressed through the music. I think that's really interesting. I mean, if I reflect on a lot of the young people I've worked with, in terms of formal classical music, obviously, there's all sorts of other music that they love, but Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture is often their starting point. And I've often thought, why? And it's about demonstrative music, isn't it? It expresses something that really is possibly outlandish for them. Mm. So it's not about subdued music that necessarily is all peaceful and lovely. Sometimes it's that really upbeat, powerful cannon going off and, and so on. Yeah, interesting. Sorry, I hadn't thought about that until we talked. So yeah, talking. no, it is. And, you know, I think we, we shouldn't fail to remember that Tchaikovsky's symphony was probably pretty revolutionary at the time too. So it's, it speaks to the rebel in us. It speaks to the drama. It speaks to intensity. You know, I, I do think that music conveys much more than I'm a Russian and it's this point in the century and here's the style which is prominent right now. It's just like, oh, drama, power. Oh! You know, who, who doesn't relate to that in one way or another? Like, oh, that's a bit much for me or yes, whatever it is. So we have it, listeners. Tchaikovsky is wicked. Now you know from the expert. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. So, so we integrate kind of this, this music work into our therapeutic work and, in, and obviously sometimes pairing it with movement or expression of emotion. What sort of benefits for children do you think we can foresee? Yeah, well, I do spend a lot of time trying to explain that the way that music works can be so different for different kids. So I did a lot of work and research with children who are grieving, for example. And so bereavement, people who've lost really important family members in their lives and you know, needed a way of expressing that. And, and so the benefits are twofold. One is that kind of emotional work that we're describing. And the other is being able for that to be recognized and seen and heard and normalized. So if it was in a group context, there are social benefits along with the emotional benefits of personal expression. There's also, I did a lot of bereavement group work and we would often, you know, the kids would be so surprised to see the emotions expressed by one another. And also, you know, in that particular situation to be able to have fun and to enjoy themselves and to connect with other people that understand that grief comes and goes and it hits you and then it's, it's totally nowhere to be seen. And so being able to normalise all of that as well or, you know, sleeping with your parents' jumper in your bed. Oh, does that not mean I'm crazy? But that comes up because I'll have played some soothing music. It's like, what's that about? What were you doing there? It's like, oh, that's how I feel when I'm hugging my, my dad's jumper in bed at night. Oh, I do that. I hug my mum's favourite teddy bear. Ah. And so it kind of, it's the social aspects of music are just as powerful as the emotional, I would say. And then to, to move beyond grieving, which is, 
you know, something that we probably all experience at some point. But um, if we think about diverse kids as well, so kids who aren't neurotypical and who are existing in school systems and the ways that they can also express themselves and be heard and recognised by the other kids in the school as being, you know, particularly similar to them in some ways because in music we transcend these kinds of cognitive differences I work heaps with kids with multiple and profound disabilities and you know they're just as able to express themselves if they can get past the physicality of it as your highly intelligent kid who's sitting in grade two they're probably going to hit the drum in a reasonably similar way given the opportunity either smash it or tap it really nervously depending on their personality um, despite quite huge cognitive difference and and so that kind of diversity which is possible when we music with other people when you sing in a choir and it doesn't matter that the person to you has a different political view to you and it doesn't matter what culture they come from what matters is you just sang that beautiful moment together in harmony and and the connection that occurs there transcends the differences that we might have at all kinds of other levels so for me that's the social and the emotional are particularly powerful um, for kids. That's wonderful thoughts. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom in this area. Um, if, any, if people would like to pursue sort of further information around this, are there any particular resources you'd direct them towards, Katrina? Yeah, look, my, my first piece of advice, and it's the hardest one uh, to explain clearly, I, I don't seem to be particularly brilliant at it, but let me try is to say that everybody reacts differently to music. So it's not about putting a piece of music on and expecting it to have an effect. It's about going, what kind of music works for this person, this kid in this case? You know, do they need to express drama and Tchaikovsky or do they need something peaceful by their bed when they go to sleep at night? Or, you know, rather than, and for us grown-ups, it's not assuming that, uh, the way that we feel or respond to music will be the same as, as the people we're working with. So we might get particular pleasures or have particular um, adverse reactions to music, but just not to assume that therefore that is the truth of the music because the way that we experience music is, is quite unique. Um, so I did create a MOOC, one of those massive open online courses that are completely free um, called... Uh, how to Change Your Life with Music, I think it's called, <laughs> um, it, which is with Coursera. And that's a, a free resource which works through diff six different ways of understanding how music works. How music can change your life is what it's called. Uh, otherwise, we have a music therapy training program at the University of Melbourne, which is a two-year master's coursework program. And the Australian Music Therapy Association has a really helpful website with a lot of information. Thank you so much for spending a bit of time with us today talking about your invaluable work. It sounds fantastic. So thank you so much, Katrina. Thank you. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you would like to follow up in further detail, please listen in to some of the other podcasts that we have made, which are available through the Generation Next website. There are also a series of books uh, from Generation Next in terms of nurturing young minds, uh, covering a series of issues to do with young people, and also in my own book, Tricky Behaviours, 
and Your Best Life at Any Age, which are both available either on Amazon or through Bad Apple Press. Thank you so much, and I uh, hope to connect with you again soon. Thank you. The Mental Health and Wellbeing of Young People seminar has gone digital. This is a resource for anyone who supports young people. The e-learning hub has all your favourite speakers from the Generation Next events and much more. There are hours and hours of courses to choose from. We know life's busy, so we made sure you can pause the courses at any stage and continue where you left off the next time you log in. You can also automatically download your certificates of participation and record your notes and ideas with the documentation tool and editable course books. If you would like to try it out, head to generationnext.com.au and sign up yourself and your whole team for the next free course. And please, share the resource far and wide. Thank you for your support for Generation Next and all you do to support young people.